Third off from the team of brass, I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance. He's the managing editor for Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron, who follows, as he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball of particular note this week. Uh, the Cincinnati Reds, Jason Marquis, and high-risk strategies. Jason Marquis, as an aged right-hander, was supposed to be a low-risk, low-ceiling strategy. Uh, he somehow has posted among the league's highest strikeout rates over three starts. Perhaps that will change tonight, Monday night, uh, another, it's his fourth start. It might change. Uh, estimating Alex Guerrero's true talent level. He said 24 plate appearances of uh, excellent performance. Something like uh, seven or eight extra base hits over that span of time and only one strikeout. How good is he and how are the Dodgers to deploy him? It's a mystery. It's a mystery. Uh, Josh Hamilton's return to Texas. We discussed that. We discussed many other things. Also, those listening to this edition of the podcast will have the pleasure of uh, Dave Cameron, who's my editor, of course, uh, reading excerpts from my most recent performance review. Just not really trying all that hard. Spangraphs Audio features managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. I'm not demanding you be at your house. Good, because I wasn't a while ago. (laughs) Where were you then? I went to a place called Alex's Grill in Louisville, which is actually quite good. Oh, okay. And uh, now by yourself, or do you have a was it a sort of lunch a lunch uh, lunch thing? Always by myself. Always, but oh, okay. Now, do you you like eating by yourself? No, but I'm a lonely person. You're wait lonely or or like solitary. Uh, probably more lonely. I actually like social interaction, but, you know, when you work from home and you have a baby, it's, uh, it's difficult to... I echo that as well. That's why uh, sometimes I'm jealous, because I know that you are part of a a relatively, correct me if I'm wrong, a relatively tight-knit faith community. Uh, that is true, yeah. Yeah, and it seems as though that would be, that would be, uh, that would be nice. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, friends are good, and, uh, having them is helpful. Yeah. So. I think it is, yeah. Breaking breaking news brought to you by people without (laughs) friends. Yeah, that's true. Well, I also noticed that. Uh, I'm lucky because, uh, it's not a faith community per se, but I live on a a boarding school campus, because my wife teaches here. And, uh, one thing from which I derive some pleasure is seeing, I like having acquaintances that I see often. Um, so you don't want to call them friends? Well, uh, close acquaintances. <laughs> okay, he's not ready to commit to calling them friends yet. I don't know yet. <laughs> Keeping them at arm length. I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah, I guess some of them, yeah, some of them might count as friends, but I don't know. For me, like, once you cross the friend threshold, that's someone with whom you would, like, uh, maintain communication, like, after you, if you move to different places. Are we friends? Yeah, I think, um, we're yeah, we're friends. <laughs> Are you saying that under duress? <laughs> no, 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 no. The, the spotlight's on you, and you're on the air. You have to say yes. No, but it's. I'm just saying it because it's. Uh, well, I've never, I've never held a job for as many years as the one I currently have. Yeah, and... I can see that. <laughs> this and, might be why we're not friends. Comments like and, that. And uh, I would say that you and I possess uh, markedly different. Um, I don't know about value systems. I think actually our value systems might be similar, but um, mannerisms. But I yeah. was, yes, I would I would count you as a friend. I think you're a total weirdo, but I think you also feel <laughs> the same way about me. Yeah, no, I think you're the most interesting friend I will ever have. All right, well, very good. Well, it's a it's a love fest here on Fangraphs Audio. <laughs> well, we can uh, change that. Um, well, let's do. Actually, I have a, I was just watching a thing. Um, I don't know why I happened upon it, but uh, it was a uh, some sort of documentary about the making of Seinfeld, right? And I think this must be like 10 years old or something like that because uh, the show has been off the air for a while. And one thing I was noticing – This wasn't like a documentary about the actual making of Jerry Seinfeld, right? No, no, be, no. That would be gross. <laughs> that would be gross. Yeah, yeah. I know. It's just like footage from his parents' bedroom. That would be, <laughs> yeah, that would be disturbing for everybody. No one needs that. No, it was uh, – and this narrative is probably familiar and, and it 
and it's a narrative that applies to other things that have been successful as well. <clears throat> but the, at the basis of it, of course, you know, after the fact now, uh, so there are probably elements of bias. Of course, it was a wildly successful show that is regarded not not only as having been a, a financial success, but as having sort of represented something of a of a of a uh, cultural phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair, right? Sure. Uh, I mean, the fact that you know about Seinfeld, I think. That's <laughs> right. The fact that I knew his first name means that they have crossed over some kind of border. <laughs> yeah, and uh, but at the be- its earliest days, though, were not particularly like the network was not excited about it. The network executives were not particularly excited about it. Um, maybe a one or two guys, and I say guys on purpose because it was all men, um, were I think did see some potential in it. But it took a while for the network to uh, put any sort of faith in it and, and to integrate it into its uh, whatever. I think it was the Thursday night lineup or whatever. Um, but it, of course, then it went on to become a big success. And it, part of their the reason that they did not care for it was because it was different and it broke some of the established rules of the sitcom. Uh, now, I'm not a huge Seinfeld devotee, but these sort of this sort of uh, the creation myth of the show is pretty interesting, especially. And <clears throat> I guess I said, well, I was also thinking, oh, I have to talk to Dave Cameron. We talk about baseball stuff. But it, it, in a sense, it, it did echo to me that sort of conservatism that one finds or has or one has found over the past 10, 15 years or perhaps infinite number of years among baseball executives where things that are different are viewed skeptically, but then also sometimes they turn out to be a revolutionary idea. And I guess I'm cu- I, I'm curious. Uh, I mean, do you think there's anything about that Seinfeld narrative for you that would that would make sense in terms of the development or developments within within the sport as well, or if that doesn't interest you at all? Um. So I'm supposed to relate to the fact that Seinfeld was like a uh, risky thing that became a big success to baseball. Sure. Yeah. Do it. Uh. Okay. I don't. I. I. I think I'm probably with most of the people listening to this podcast, but I don't know where that question was going. <laughs> well, all right. So, so I, I think it is a it's a narrative that in this case it applies to television, but it also seems to transcend television as well. Is you have anytime that there are new ideas developing, um, even regardless of their their merits, there is a certain skepticism with whether they will be, for example, widely appreciated. Um, and I think that's been a case within the sport. I mean, anytime... well, isn't, isn't that rational? I mean, like, I think if we don't look skeptically at new ideas, we're going to bounce from ditch to ditch following, you know, the fact that Jimmy Paredes is now hitting 700 with 55 home runs or something like, you know, skepticism towards things that have not yet been tested and proven over longer samples is, you know, rational. So what is the correct amount? So how do you weigh the potential or the seeming merits of an idea versus its um, its novelty or like how new it is, right? So if you say, oh, that's a great idea, but if it has received essentially like zero trials, um, then you don't really know if it's a good idea. I, what, what, where does that balance occur? How much, how great does an idea have to be for it to receive very few number of trials? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't even know how you would begin to measure like the greatness of an idea before you had some kind of evidence of its practicality, right? Like, I mean, so maybe in like, you know, some kind of particle physics uh, uh, discussion where you can't actually prove anything. You could have some giant breakthrough just on the merit of the thought. Mm-hmm. But if someone put forward an idea and said, you know, here's this really awesome way to fly without an airplane. Uh, this is going to revolutionize the world. The first thing we would ask them to do is like, okay, fly. Show <laughs> us that you can do that, right? Like the idea is useless until you have the evidence that it works, right? Mm-hmm. And so... I think uh, going in with some skepticism of revolutionary ideas and saying, you know, you've been doing it all wrong for hundreds of years. Uh, this is how you should actually do it. Until the person shows you that it's actually revolutionary, I would tend to think that, you know, you should reject them. I mean, you know, I think a lot of kind of the scams of the day or the, the people who uh, get taken in by, you know, snake oil salesmen are people who don't have enough skepticism of new ideas. Or, or whose lives are m- sort of miserable enough that they're kind of willing to, right. to attempt they're, anything. They gamble, right? Yeah. Right. But, yeah, I mean, yeah. right. You could almost say like the lottery, right? Like, so uh, there's a pretty good argument that the lottery is essentially a tax on poor people because mm-hmm. uh, people who are generally uh, have enough wealth to not need the lottery in order to get out of 
their current economic state are also generally um, uh, educated enough to know the lottery is not a good idea. Uh, and so you, you essentially have people who are desperate playing the lottery, hoping to hit the jackpot and get out of their impoverished state. Um, I think, you know, in a sense, these new ideas treated with not skepticism uh, or unskepticism, whatever the word would lack be. Lack of skepticism. Lack of skepticism could be almost like a lottery that you're attaching to people and saying, okay, uh, you know, you're only going to buy into this idea if the return is so great for you and your floor is already so low that you're not going to appreciate the risks involved with this idea. Right. Well, is that the uh, – I remember this this post you wrote about the Reds for the preseason is sticking out to me. And it's actually it's, – it, it has – there's a, an interesting layer that has been added to it with, uh, with three weeks of data now. But that was – you were saying this is a team that is sort of in a weird place because on the one hand, there are elements of it that suggest they probably should be rebuilding. On the other hand, they're hosting the All-Star game. Uh, and typically you don't want your team to be an abject failure as you enter that. And, but, so you said, well, if the team really wants the, the, the team, uh, needs to essentially maximize the potential upside. And they need to essentially invest in the unknown. And doing that would be, uh, to do that would be to not have Jason Marquis and another soft tossing, a uh, soft tossing lefty. John, John, uh, Paul Mahomes. Paul Mahomes, right. And yeah. what they should think, consider is having a Desclafani. Discal- Desclafani and uh, Rizella Glacius, I think, was the other possibility. Yeah. And then maybe... And, and if, since, since then, Jason Marquino leads the major leagues and strikeout. <laughs> yes, that's the that's thing that's happened. <laughs> I was thinking about that today because, uh, uh, of course, today marked uh, something that's important to zero people, which is the uh, the first edition of the, the Nerd Scores on the site. And uh, and he receives a nine largely because, yes, as you mentioned, he has an enormous strikeout rate. Yeah. And... Uh, <clears throat> The, the, the novelty of which is compounded by the fact that it's way higher than it's ever been, even over, I think then, was it Craig Edwards who proved yeah. it's like, it's like, it's like the most strikeouts he's ever had over three starts. Yeah, right. I mean, Jason Marquis has been a pitch to contact guy his entire life and now at age 37 or whatever he is, he's like suddenly just throwing these splitters in the dirt and guys are chasing them, which, you know, won't last. Right, right, sure. It's 50, three starts, 15 innings. And that should tell you something right there. Three starts, 15 innings. That's an and I think one of those starts was against the Brewers, who are barely a major league team at this point. Right. And I think actually you might be facing the Brewers again tonight. He is, yeah. Uh, because, uh, JewishBaseballNews.com tells me that there's a big Jew versus Jew battle. Um, I'm quoting that. I'm not saying that uh, on my own accord. But uh, yes, Jason Marquis versus Ryan Braun is uh, it's an important moment for uh, Jewish baseball fans. Except for Ryan Braun is apparently terrible now. Yeah, it's too well, too bad for everyone, I guess. Uh, <laughs> Especially Jews. Yeah, except well, oh, I guess Jason Marquis will gain from it though. That's really true. So the benefit of one Jew is that Ryan Braun is now atrocious. <laughs> right. Actually, like I was looking at the leaderboards this morning. Now that we have UZR on the site. And I think, you know, Braun is not hitting. I think he has, what, one extra base hit or something. But he's also, like, fourth worst in outfield UZR and, like, third worst in base running. So he's just across the board awful. Not so doing too well. Yeah, yeah, that's too bad. Uh, yeah, it's unlikely that – but, but right, so that has thrown – so I guess one of the possibilities, if it was the unknown, was you would have uh, – you would integrate um, Rizal Iglesias and Disclafani and maybe Tony Singrani uh, as much as he could. and then. Uh, but one of them is uh, Jason, Jason Marquis throws, what, throws a new pitch or throws – has he had the splitter before? He has had it, yeah. This okay. is not an entirely new pitch. I think he might be throwing it a little bit more, but this is not a, you know, out of nowhere, you know, overnight change. Right, okay. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so that's that's the other thing that could happen. Um, but, but the idea was, right, sort of um, the importance, like – if if you're up if you have poor odds of succeeding, investing in high risk strategies actually is a better you, there's a better argument for it at that point. Yeah, I, I think you know uh, the, the, basically the argument is that there's a very low utility on low marginal wins uh, or you know not even wins but just in life I guess if you say like you know there's not a huge difference between making you know poverty level or the poverty level plus five dollars right like this is not going to change your life much so that's why people are like whatever it's five dollars i'm going to spend this on a lottery ticket because there's some chance that this will pull me out of where i am 
uh, and drastically change my outcome, which $5 will not do. Uh, so if you're already in this, you know, bad spot, you, you can rationalize how much worse can it really get? You know, like <laughs> now I have to buy like single ply toilet paper instead of like single and a half ply or something like, uh, but if you're, uh, if you have something to lose, then risk is, is not so good. Uh, mm-hmm. and you want to minimize your risk and try and kind of defend what you have. And so if you're a, you know, mediocre to bad team, you want to take as many gambles as you can. And hope to, you know, hit snake eyes. I mean, you want to try and uh, just, you know, gamble as at as many positions as you can. Hope things turn out in your favor, and you kind of luck your way out of your situation. So, so to go back to Seinfeld, if now NBC is one of the main networks, but if if they were a fledgling network, then that then we could we might have expected perhaps that that a fledgling network would have had more interest in developing such a show than than one of the main networks like NBC. I mean, I think we've seen that, right? Not that I'm a TV historian or something, but, like, cable channels have taken shots on things that the broadcast networks haven't. So you pitch your idea to, like, a broadcast network or HBO or one of the big boys, and if they pass, then you go to AMC or, uh, you know, Comedy Central or, you know, one of these smaller things that doesn't have, you know, the cream of the crop. They don't have as much money. Uh, And they say, okay, whatever. We are picking from the second or third tier of shows. This has a chance to, you know, if we take buy five of these, maybe we'll get one show that the big guys, you know, regret passing on. Right. Um, yeah, buying. Well, and, and that's a. I think that isn't that some of the strategy uh, we've seen in international signings, where there are certain teams that are more likely to pay to go after um, uh, to pay the highest bonuses, whereas other teams might invest in more prospects uh, of a you know at lower signing bonuses. Yeah, I mean, back when teams were actually following the bonus pools, there was kind of a question of, like, whether it was better to sign one guy for almost your entire bonus pool or two guys or something, or to sign 20 guys for $100,000 each. And it was, like, kind of an interesting question of, like, which strategy is better. Now we just have the Yankees and Dodgers and all these teams deciding to do both and sign all of the best players. Uh, so now that that situation is a little bit uh uh, outdated, but yeah. yeah, I mean, like, it is an interesting question to ask, because, like, when it comes to 16-year-olds, would you rather have 20 guys who scouts kind of are meh on, or, like, two that scouts really love? Uh, probably the 20, but it's not clear. Yeah, it's interesting, um, because, you know, uh, Kyla McDaniels, uh, published in the last couple of weeks, um, multiple posts on the, uh, prospects, uh, international prospects who, who are expected to sign at July 2nd, or near July 2nd, and, you know, a lot of these Guys are or kids are 16, you know, of Dominican or Republic. Not even 16 yet. <laughs> right, they're not even 16, right? And and also uh, many of them have, if not solid deals in place, at least uh, you know something, and they have an, some sort of understanding with a major league club probably already. Um, but I was trying to to get a, it's hard to get an understanding because you know they're 16. It's like the earliest you're really ever going to see them in the major leagues is maybe what in five years, four or five years. Yeah, it's, I think that's aggressive. Right, I mean that's unlikely. So we I, we did a little experiment. We looked at the uh, the top international signings and bonuses of 2010. So these are guys who are 21 now, and uh, um, these are the these are the three top bonus or the five top bonuses from then. Uh, a, a, I'll I'll do it in reverse order. Renato Nunez, who's who's actually a decent prospect in the A system. Um, Phillips Castillo, you might be familiar with that name. Yeah, he's not good. I think he was released, actually. Yeah, uh, I think he might be done. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he was signed for 2.2 million, and roughly all of these you can more or less double uh, to get a sense of present-day dollars. Uh, Ariel Ovando with the Astros, I believe he's been converted to a pitcher now. Uh, Luis Radia in the Pirate system, uh, he was uh, signed out of Mexico, and then Adonis Cardona. And the Blue Jays system signed out of Venezuela. He received the highest bonus, you know, present day dollars, uh, maybe something in the four to five million range. Yeah, that's rough. That's rough. Yeah, and uh, I, I did that though because you know it's it's hard to really distinguish any of these July second guys from each other. But then you look at this group, and uh, now Kylie suggests that these are this is probably a weak year, and that happens too. I guess. Yeah, it was a weak year. No, I mean I think like uh, just. Kind of going off my own memory, I do remember like Miguel Cabrera was one of these bonus babies. Like I think he got like a million five or something uh, back when that was you know the most that anyone was getting. He was you know probably in today's dollars like five or six or seven or something. And uh, it was not a big surprise when Miguel Cabrera turned into you know not necessarily Miguel Cabrera but you know a very good major league player. 
uh, that wasn't a guy who just popped up. And so you could maybe make the argument that, like, okay, you missed on these five guys this one time, but you get one Miguel Cabrera out of the deal, and it justifies blowing your money on all of the rest of the guys. And maybe if you kind of go for the lower-tier guys, you won't get any Miguel Cabreras. Maybe your success rate will be higher, but your overall impact will be lower because you're not going to get a guy who's a, you know, inner circle Hall of Famer. Right, right. Or, but you could also get starting Marte or Johnny Cueto, both of whom signed for less than 30,000, I think. Yeah, I mean, right, I guess that's the question. And I haven't looked at this close enough to know, and, and I'm not sure that uh, it's even a very easy question to answer because so much of the signing bonuses are tied to relationships and kind of, you know, some guys actually do take less money because they're friendly with the scout or, um, you know, for whatever reason, they just decide not to take the highest offer. And we don't, you know, the offers aren't public. So it, it can be a little bit tough uh, to, to kind of figure out what kind of prospects these guys were uh, at the times they signed. But, you know, I think there you could at least make an argument that there's maybe a higher chance of landing a Miguel Cabrera type if you play at the top of the pool than if you play at the bottom of the pool. And that would potentially justify a very high bust rate if your goal is to kind of do this, you know, boom or bust thing and, you know, miss on 90% of them but get one franchise player out of the deal. All right. Let's let's talk about a player who signed internationally. Uh, you'll have to remind me of the exact terms of the deal if you remember them. But it, uh, this is Alex Guerrero, uh, maybe an infielder, may, maybe an outfielder. But he's uh, his first, what, like 20-something plate appearances have been preposterous. Yeah, he got $28 million over four years from the Dodgers uh, last year as a Cuban refugee, or escapee, or defector, Defect- or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Em- uh, uh, emigre? emigre? Sure. It's a slightly uh, French term, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah so he got 428 from the Dodgers, and uh, also got some really weird clauses. But after one year, he wasn't allowed to be sent to the minor leagues, and if he was traded, he would immediately become a free agent following the uh, year in which he was traded. So it was $28 million plus some, like, nifty contractual extras that probably make this, you know, maybe like a $35 million contract in actual value. And um, he – and right, as you mentioned, there, I think before the season there were questions as to whether they would trade him – try to trade him or trade someone else um, to, to make space for him, although it wasn't clear what position he would play anyway if he gave him a chance. That's still not entirely clear. Uh, last week we were considering uh, some small samples and – how much performance over a limited sample would actually, I guess to to use a term, to would move the needle in terms of the projections, the, the sort that are produced by Steamer and Zips, uh, which appear on the player pages at the site. Uh, even you you sort of mentioned uh, that even in despite the fact that he's hardly played, uh, you know it, it is just 24 play appearances I think it was. Yeah. Um, the fact that he's hit what five home runs over those 24 plate appearances. Yeah. And uh, and I think struck out just once. Yeah. Uh, that's enough already to to move the needle so far as those projections are concerned. Yeah, I mean, I think especially with a guy like Alex Guerrero, we probably had a fairly low confidence in the projections because we basically had a bunch of maybe questionable Cuban data that we were trying to translate. Uh, and then we had, you know, a half of a year of PCL numbers in which he was very good, but it was also the PCL. And then Miguel Olivo bit his ear off and he missed the rest of the season. So we have, you know, three months' worth of AAA data for a guy who's old for the league, but only old for the league because he was stuck in another country, not because he was deemed not good enough to play in the major leagues. So, we, you know, we have a whole bunch of factors going into these preseason projections that make us maybe not put a lot of faith in them or put less faith in them than we would for a guy who's, you know, 3,000 major league at-bats. Uh, and then Guerrero does something like seven extra base hits and one strikeout and 24 plate appearances, and you say, okay, there's two skills being demonstrated here. Contact ability, I think he's at 87% contact rate, which is way above the league average, uh, and, and significant power, seven extra base hits and 24 plate appearances, two of which were walks, so 22 at-bats, really. Uh, and, you know, uh, you know, little guys like Ben Revere aren't going to do that, right? So this is a skill that uh, some players just can't achieve, so we can already move Guerrero out of the bin of being a, you know, a slap hitter, uh, you know, a D. Gordon type, and say... Only guys with actual power are going to ever do this in any 22-bat sample. Uh, and the fact that he's making contact at the same time means that there might be an actual good big league hitter in there, and we have to significantly ratchet up the projections from what we thought even a month ago. Right. There, so there, there are very few instances in which uh, someone is making contact at this rate and also producing extra base hits at this rate. 
Yeah, it's just hard. I mean, that's generally the trade-off that guys make. You can either hit for contact or hit for power, unless you're Albert Pujols or Miguel Cabrera or something. Like, to do both at the same time is a special, you know, you have to be a really talented player in order to do it, because the kind of swing that produces power generally doesn't produce contact, and vice versa. And if you can do both at the same time, even in short bursts, uh, it makes you pretty interesting. Right, and so this was a story that... uh one could have applied, or one did, many people did apply to the Red Sox in their, uh, the preseason, which was, uh, you know, where, who's going to play where. And I think that, you know, that one of the general refrains that, that, uh, comes out of situations like this is, it's di- very difficult to have too much talent, right? Uh, you know, it's, it definitely applies to, um, starting pitchers, but it also applies to, uh, to, to position players as well. There's, there's no, there's no really such thing as, as having too much talent. Um, but, but the Dodgers do have in Alex Guerrero someone they'd like to get in the lineup. The question is, where do they put him? Yeah, I mean, I think the reality is that you never have too much talent, but you can have a poor distribution of that talent. And I think that's where the Dodgers are right now, is they have, you know, maybe six or seven or eight good infielders, especially if you count Hector Oliveira, if he ever gets a, a visa and gets into the minor leagues and shows that he's going to be ready for the second half of the season, uh, and maybe ready to contribute as a, what, 31-year-old, he was supposed to be basically major league ready. Uh, you know, given a month's worth of minor league at bats or something after he comes over. Uh, so if you say, okay, eight good infielders and three good starting pitchers, now that Brandon McCarthy is going to join Hinjin Ryu on the disabled list, uh, they're turning to the likes of Mike Bolsinger, who's kind of interesting, but not necessarily who you want as your number four starter, uh, when you're in April and, uh, you might have more injuries coming. Um, you know, the Dodgers lack pitching depth, but they have out infielders coming out their wazoo. You can say, it's fine to have too much talent because you can always find a use for good players, but that use is generally, if you find yourself in a surplus, you can make a trade. And uh, I think that's one of the tricky things about the Dodgers situation. Alex Guerrero's contract is almost not untradeable, but it makes it difficult to find a good deal for him because the Dodgers, especially if they believe in Guerrero's bat now, would be trading away three years of cost-controlled, uh, fairly low salaries because some of his deal was front-loaded. I think he's only making $14 million over the next three years, this year included. Uh, and any team who gets him is only acquiring one year because he has an opt-out at the end of the season if he's traded. So if you're a team who's going to trade for Alex Guerrero, you're only giving up what you can get for from one year of 2015 value. But if you're the Dodgers, you want to be compensated for the three years you might have him uh, if you think he's going to hit like this going forward, and maybe he's your third baseman next year, or maybe he's your second baseman next year, or maybe he's a left fielder next year. If you think that there's some long-term value with Guerrero, uh, you probably don't want to trade three years to someone who's only buying one. So who who could they possibly – So there's, but there's not a lot to do necessarily because they have a number of contracts that don't make sense to trade on their on their roster, don't they? Yeah, I think this is one of the tricky things about the Dodgers situation is like when I set out to write the post this morning, I was like, let's try and figure out a solution. And I got done with the post and I'm like, there isn't one really. Like, <laughs> the, 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 I mean, they should trade for pitching. And I think at the market, at, at the moment right now, there are probably two starting pitchers that are reasonably available. Cole Hamels and Dylan G. Those are the two guys that we know, uh, with some certainty, the teams who have them would trade them. And Dylan uh, the part- G, uh, we find even if he's not going to be terribly effective, well, at least work quickly. He will work quickly in giving the other team the lead. That, that is what he does. <laughs> he throws fast, and then the score goes up quickly, uh, which is why the Mets want to get rid of him. Uh, so I think, you know, from the, from the Dodgers' perspective, you, you say, okay, Hamels is going to be too expensive because the Phillies want, you know, Corey Seager and Julio Urias and Jock Peterson, uh, which you're not going to do. And the Dylan G is bad and not any better than their internal replacements. And so you look around the league and you're like, okay, well, The Brewers have Matt Garza, who could maybe be an okay number five starter for the Dodgers, except for the fact the Brewers probably aren't ready to trade Matt Garza yet. Uh, And so you have to wait for them to, you know, throw in the towel in 2015. And, you know, if you're waiting for the Brewers, maybe at that point now you've waited long enough that you're three or four weeks away from the Reds throwing in the towel in 2015. And why trade for Matt Garza if you can wait another month and trade for Johnny Cueto? And so you kind of get yourself into this position where you've waited yourself into July and now, now all the good pitchers are available, but you still had to throw Mike Bolsinger as your number four starter for three months. And so I think, you know, from the Dodgers' perspective, they don't have too much talent. They just have a poorly distributed talent, and they have too many infielders and not enough pitchers. And yeah, too many I, outfielders. They have too many hitters and not enough pitchers. Mike Bolsinger, I will actually come to his defense. This may shock you. 
he's pitched he's pitched well in terms of fielding independent numbers. No, I I, I think Mike Bolsinger is an interesting guy, especially as a reliever. Uh, I, I liked that pickup of Bolsinger. I'm not trying to attack him. Okay. But if you're the Dodgers and you have a 275 million dollar payroll, yeah. and he's your number four starter in April, you did something wrong. You're like right. he could maybe be, maybe be your number four starter in September after like you shredded through all of your arms and you're just like this is what we have left. But if it's three weeks into the season and he's your number four starter. You didn't have enough pitching depth. Didn't they have? Didn't they have? It seemed like they had a lot of starting pitchers. Because Brett Anderson, I thought at one point Brett Anderson almost seemed like surplus, but did he not? He, he signed to be their number five, okay. and then he moved up to number four when Ryu got hurt, and now he's number three because McCarthy's hurt. And behind him is you know Joe Wheeland, who might be interesting, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Uh, Carlos Frias. What is Carlos Frias? Carlos is hanging out in the bullpen as a long guy. They've got yeah. Baker, who they called up in. To start yesterday, Scott Baker was atrocious last year. Oh, well, yeah. uh, these are the kinds of guys that are hanging around as their six, seven, eight, nine starters, and none of them are the kinds of six, seven, eight, nine starters you'd expect on a team with a two hundred and seventy-five million dollar payroll. Yeah. All right. Uh, so, what do you? How do you, do you just? Uh, this is a thing where something sh- should happen, but there's really no uh, obvious solution. I mean, I think, you know, the most obvious solution is the Dodgers trade for Cole Hamels because they can take that contract and not have it really affect them that much because they are sitting on a money-printing machine, apparently, and don't care about costs. Um, and, you know, the Phillies need talent, and the, and the Dodgers have some. Uh, but I don't know that the Phillies are going to be all that interested in a guy like Guerrero who can opt out of his deal at the end of the year. They're probably not going to be all that interested in, you know, Andre Ethier or Carl Crawford, some of these guys that the Dodgers should be motivated to move in order to free up playing time for guys like Justin Turner or Scott Van Slyke or some of these, you know, useful pieces that they have sitting on the bench. Um, so, you know, the Phillies are basically going to say, we want all your good prospects. That's not a move the Dodgers should make. And if, you know, if you're not willing to make that trade, then you're just basically sitting around until summer, until other buyers come around or other sellers come around and you can try and, you know, shop for something else. I think the tricky thing, though, is, like, if you say Guerrero's tough to trade because of his contract, Justin Turner's not going to have a lot of trade value as their number three utility infielder who hardly <laughs> ever gets to play. Uh, Juan Uribe is 36 and is not going to have any trade value or very little trade value. Uh, Crawford's basically played himself out of a job uh, and is a terrible contract. Ethier has a terrible contract. Like, these are not things that you can generally trade for quality pitching. So you can maybe swap one of these guys for... Edwin Jackson or something, if you want to take a gamble on a, on a reclamation project. Uh, but you're probably not going to get anyone uh, good for any of these players. Uh, so it's not obviously clear how the Dodgers are going to free up this logjam besides just maybe releasing Crawford in a month or two. What, um, by the way, you mentioned Johnny Cueto at one point. He's, he's already off to a very good start. He's uh, really good. Yeah, he's really good. He's, uh, he's still doing the thing he does where – he prevents runs above and beyond what his defense independent numbers would suggest, but his but now his defense independent numbers are awesome too. Are also shocking, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, he so. went from being a guy who didn't really get a lot of strikeouts and basically just got outs by limiting hits on balls in play, and then no one can score because he's impossible to steal off of. And now he just strikes everybody out too. Yeah, it's a great it's a great combination of skills. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but um, uh, you mentioned with regard so if 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 the Dodgers and Phillies were to talk about it. it. You mentioned that Guerrero would only have one year left on his contract if he went to Philadelphia. But is there a way uh, where the you know the Phillies could be like, hey, if we trade for you, you know, we'll sign you to X number of years at, with this amount of money? I mean, is that a possibility? Yeah, I mean, I think that you know they could approach Guerrero and even say, hey, look, you know, will you push that opt out back a year and we'll just give you a big raise and make your you know we'll give you ten million extra instead of five and you don't and you guarantee that you won't opt out and then we get you for two years and then we can figure it out. I don't think they're going to want to give a guy a long-term deal before they've had a chance to see him themselves. They're not going to want to trade for Guerrero and then give him a five-year contract, especially if no one knows, can he play second base, can he play third base, who knows? And, like, you know, the Phillies actually kind of like uh, Cody Yashi and Michael Franco, Franco, who are, like, two of their better young players, which is, you know, damning with the faintest of praise. Uh, but, you know, the, maybe Guerrero isn't a good fit for them anyway from a positional standpoint. Uh, you know, I think that that's one of the tricky things is uh, because Guerrero doesn't really have a position and he doesn't really have a track record and because his contract makes him uh, makes it difficult for anyone to give up significant value in order to, to acquire him, the only way that it's 
going to work probably is the Dodgers just start playing him every day uh, or fairly regularly. He keeps hitting like a monster and people say, forget it, whatever, we'll just pay for the rental. Uh, or the Dodgers just say, meh, you're too good to trade. We're just going to make you our starting third baseman and, and use Juan Uribe as a defensive replacement and forget Hector Oliveira, who we just gave $63 million to in March. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, do you see – because it's it's rare that a contending team is also a seller at the deadline, but but what you're suggesting is that the Dodgers might actually find themselves in a position to be that. Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen it before. Like, I think the, the 2004 Red Sox were maybe the best example of this, where oh, they right. traded away Nomar Garciaparra in the middle of a pennant race uh, in order to get some better defensive shortstop who... Orlando uh, Cabrera. Orlando Cabrera, right. And uh, Nomar was, you know kind of an icon in Boston, or at least had been a star for a while. Uh, and they said, you know, we just don't like your defense anymore, so we're going to get a better defensive shortstop, and we're going to kind of buy and sell at the same time, and they won the World Series. Uh, I, it's not impossible that the Dodgers could do something similar, where, you know, June or July rolls around, and Alex Guerrero is having just, you know, a really strong season still, but maybe they like Oliveira, who's hitting in the minor leagues at that time, and they still like Juan Uribe's defense, and they say the best way for us to improve our team uh, is to trade Guerrero, uh, to a team who likes the bat and doesn't mind the glove. Uh, maybe they send him to the Padres. He seems to be a Padres kind of player, right? Uh, and they get some kind of quality pitcher in return, even though, uh, he'd only have one year left on his deal, or he'd be in his walk year because of his contract. Uh, maybe if he's hitting really well in July still, the acquiring team doesn't really care. Okay. Alright. Uh, let's move elsewhere in the NL West. You mentioned the Padres. And uh, today is a notable day. Um, I don't know if it's your favorite day. Uh, it's a notable day, though, in that the first iteration of UZR numbers were released. They were. They were. And uh, those numbers reveal certain things. For example, uh, as one might have expected, uh, well, one might have expected before the season for the Padres um, fielding metrics not to be particularly good. And yeah, especially their outfield fielding metrics. It's, right. Okay. And And early on, uh, at least according to UZR, that appears to be the case. But this is yeah. not necessarily um, a uh, – what is the thing where everyone agrees? What is consensus. The consensus. This is not necessarily a consensus among uh, even the defensive metrics that are carried at the site. Yeah, DRS thinks they've been okay, right? Yeah, so respond to that, Dave Cameron. <laughs> so I think, you know, I tweeted out a couple of things about UZR this morning, like highlighting the fact like Hanley Ramirez is like negative 40 UZR 150 because I've seen a decent amount of people who watch a lot of Red Sox games make comments saying during the first couple of weeks that Hanley Ramirez is the worst defensive outfielder they've ever seen. And this, this is a, a group of fans that watch Manny Ramirez for almost a decade. So, you know, this is uh, a significant criticism. Uh, and I thought it was interesting that UZR agrees and says this guy, is, as an experiment, is atrocious so far. I mean, it doesn't mean he can't get better, uh, but so far... It and it's his first be, time playing the position, right? So Yeah, he hasn't played the outfield. Uh, yeah. And he seems to be bad at it, initially. At least. But you and, figure if someone can at least fake it at shortstop for like 8, 10 years, then they could they could have some success in left field. You would think so, but I think with Hanley specifically, uh, there's two things, right? So Hanley Ramirez is noticeably bigger now than he was at shortstop. Yes, like, he is. He's, I mean, you can draw whatever conclusions you want from the fact that the guy hits the ball really hard and has gained 40 pounds. Uh, Hanley Ramirez is not the Hanley Ramirez that played shortstop. He's a big guy now, like a, a very large left field DH type. So not the same guy who played shortstop, uh, in, in body type or physique or speed. Uh, and also, a large part of Hanley Ramirez's defensive problems throughout the years have not been physical, but uh, uh, mental or uh, effort-related. Yeah. Hanley Ramirez seems to just not really care about defense. And maybe that's not a fair criticism, but from the outside, it appears that he doesn't really care and doesn't put in the kind of work you needed to be a good defense of anything. And so whether it's a shortstop or third base or wherever you put him, he's just not really trying all that hard. So you you put him in left field and he tries less than an average left fielder, just like he tried less than an average shortstop <laughs> or less than an average third baseman. And so he will rate poorly by any of these metrics, if you believe this, because there's just not the effort there. And so, uh, you know, as much as the Red Sox might like Hanley Ramirez's offense, uh, and he's hitting very well for them, uh, it might be that Hanley Ramirez and not Pablo Sandoval is the David Ortiz replacement going forward when Ortiz is kind of ages out of the DH spot because it could be that Hanley Ramirez just not a good enough player to play the field uh, due to his indifference about the, the value of catching the ball. Right, right. Uh, so 
sorry, my wife is calling me. Her off. The um, so, so that's what the Red Sox outfit. Yeah, do you notice? Uh, as a, how do you, I guess it's you can't really uh, quantify um, indifference, right? I mean, I mean, maybe we, we might be able to with Statcast data if we ever get that released, like widely available for a large sample of data. Is we might be able to say like, you know, Hanley Ramirez on this play ran this far and has showed, you know, the ability to have a top speed of X and a, you know, initial reaction of this. And, like, he has shown the physical capabilities that would make an average outfielder. And then his average is 20% of his maximum uh, because, on, you know, all these other plays, he doesn't come anywhere close to what we know he can do. And I think that might be an interesting way to, to categorize or to quantify effort in the future. As you say, like, this player has shown the ability to do this and he only gets X percentage of it uh, or gets close to it on X percentage of the plays, where maybe a guy like Sam Fold or something gets there like 90% of the time, and you're like, oh, you know, uh, this guy doesn't have necessarily the same uh, peak in terms of athletic ability, but he just gets there more often. Maybe that's how you uh, say this is one way to measure effort. Um, what does uh, what do you what do you say to those instances, Cameron? Because I know that people are curious about this. Where um, either UZ, where UZR doesn't necessarily reflect what people think they've seen with their eyes, or perhaps most importantly, where UZR and defensive runs saved, which I think is the baseball inf- info solutions metric, where those don't even agree. Yeah, I mean, I think the one that I've seen bandied about this morning, uh, Juan Lagares, who's uh, generally considered to be one of the best defensive center fielders in baseball, maybe the best defensive center fielder in baseball. But, but play, plays very shallow, and his arm ratings benefit from that. Is that right? Yeah, right. Like, coming up to the minors wasn't necessarily considered a crazy good. But then when he got to the major leagues, he had posted, like, a plus 15 UZR in a month or something and got a lot of people's attention. And they were like, oh, this guy really is good defensively. So a guy who was basically highlighted by UZR uh, through the first three weeks of 2015 – uh, not doing so well. I think his rates is one of the worst defensive center fielders so far, which uh, is the kind of thing that skeptics of defensive metrics love to point out and say, you know, in this three-week sample, this guy who we know to have a, or we believe to have a very high true talent level has uh, performed poorly, therefore the metric is bad. Uh, I think my retort to that would be if you could sort almost any statistic in baseball right now and find some really surprising things, like Devin Travis being the number three hitter in baseball, uh, or a Denny Hechevarria has uh, more extra base hits than Victor Martinez. Like, you know, these are not things that we question the results of because we're pretty confident in the fact that they did happen, and they did happen, right? So, like, there is some uh, just noise in the fact, not just defensive metrics, probably more than others, but... Uh, in any metric over three weeks, you should be careful drawing conclusions uh, and probably not do so based on the results of anything. You know, right. like uh, but, the, ma- the major league leader in, e- in ERA right now is uh, uh, someone not good whose name escapes me. Uh, but I like Anthony DiSclefani has a 105 ERA and leads the National League. Anthony DiSclefani, not the best pitcher in the National League. We understand that. We wouldn't draw that conclusion, so don't draw that conclusion about UZR or DRS. Yeah, I mean, do you think that's just the relative – uh, how the, the fact that these are newer metrics that it, that you, people don't necessarily have a framework for. Uh, I mean, they can look up and say, "Well, you need you need this amount of data," but you don't necessarily have a, a natural framework, a sort of ad hoc framework for being like, "Oh yeah, well, I'm not going to really, you know, I'll look at it now. It's I suppose it's interesting, but I'm not going to uh, put too much stock in it this time." I mean, I think this can tie back into our earlier comment about skepticism, right? It's like. Uh, I think there's more skepticism out there about UZR and DRS and defensive metrics than there are about other metrics, including ones that aren't any better from a construct standpoint. Like I've, I, I routinely refer to UZR and DRS as being essentially the equivalent of ERA, uh, which is a widely accepted metric of evaluating pitching talent, but has many of the same problems, uh, that UZR and DRS have. Uh, in terms of, you know, trying to give credit to uh, one guy out of a, a host of variables in which, you know, it's not entirely clear who should get the credit. Uh, you know, from my perspective, you, you need about as much a large sample of ERA as you do UZR and DRS before you start taking it seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think people are happy to quote ERA and say this is a good metric, and they're not so happy to quote UZR and DRS and say this is the same. Um and I think part of it gets to the skepticism of this is something new or this is something that challenges kind of preconceived notions, right? Like I think this is still one of the things that uh, holds some people back from buying into kind of uh, dips theory or batted ball theory is that the conclusions can be wildly different than what we have 
generally believed. And so there's there, if you're going to buy into this metric and think that it's a good metric, you have to be willing to throw off some of the things you previously believed. And as we said, that's like there's rational reasons to not want to do that until you have really strong evidence that what you believed before is wrong. Uh, and for some people, they haven't quite reached that evidence threshold where they're willing to say how I've evaluated pitchers for 50 years is wrong. So I'm going to, you know, now think that CC Sabathia is good, even though he has an ERA of eight and gives giving up home runs every night. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Enough of that. Uh, and you, I think, believe you've almost, um, fulfilled your obligation. Let's get to one last thing though. I, I think just, uh, n- not long before we got on, uh, the, the air here, the, it's not really the air. It's not live. But as, as before we started talking, uh, Jeff Sullivan published a post about uh, Josh Hamilton, who what is definitely confirmed now will be will be going uh, back to the Texas Rangers from from the Angels. I don't think it's been officially announced, but it is uh, well accepted that this deal is going to happen. Okay, what is uh, what is he eligible to play again, Josh Hamilton? I think uh, from the, he wasn't suspended by the league, so oh. he's eligible to return when he's not injured and that is kind of a little bit of a question mark right like uh i think the timeline when he was with the angels was somewhere in may or june but part of that timeline i think was because the angels didn't really want him back which is clear by the fact that they're paying him to go away uh and i think you know with the rangers they might say hey we actually do want you we have nothing in left field uh we would like to accelerate your timetable and maybe you were healthier than you were acting because you didn't want to play with the angels either what, how did that how did that whole thing sour so very quickly? Yeah, it's a it's an interesting thing. I I think uh it seems clear uh, and there have been articles written over the weekend that kind of hinted at this or outright stated it that the baseball management baseball ops team and and with the Angels wasn't really all that high on signing Josh Hamilton and Artie Moreno who's a very involved owner basically overruled them and did it himself uh, and said this is a guy that I want and so I'm going to send spend my money and sign him. So uh, there was probably not a lot of internal support for Hamilton because this was an owner's choice uh, selection and, uh, and probably not a lot of people in baseball ops fighting to, to keep Hamilton around since he wasn't their, their selection to begin with. They didn't have a lot of skin in that game. Uh, and then Moreno clearly himself uh, turned on Hamilton very quickly uh, after <laughs> – uh, a couple of very poor years and, and a very bad return on his investment. Uh, and I think, uh, again, speculation from the outside with no inside knowledge, it appears from public comments that the Angels and, and Moreno himself made that he saw Hamilton's relapse as an opportunity to get out of the contract. He, he saw dollar signs and said, I think I can use this to uh, save myself some money and get out of this deal that I wish I hadn't signed. And then when it didn't work, uh, he got mad. And when Hamilton didn't get suspended, which would have given the Angels a refund on their money, uh, he decided, you know what, I'm going to be a little bit petulant about this, and I just want this guy to go away anyway. So even though the suspension didn't go my way, and I'm not getting a refund, I'm just tired of this guy, and I'm going to get rid of him. Yeah, you know, I know you're not saying this about Artie Moreno specifically, but um, it the, the way you're sort of describing the situation, it, it does make him sound, just if you look at the facts of his behavior, the things you can view from the outside, that maybe he's acting a, like a little bit, like maybe other executives do too, a little bit like a toddler. Yeah. I, um, I think Moreno, Moreno has a, a decent history of acting childish. Because, because you can't, adults can't do that. Adults can't be like, adults really can't be like, I want that thing. And then well, they can if they have hundreds of millions of dollars. Well, I guess yeah, but like I mean, there's a level of income at which you can then revert to childishness. I guess that's true. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't matter. (laughs) You only need maturity at a certain income range, and then once you've exceeded that income range, (laughs) maturity is now optional. You could just be a silly person who says I want that, and then when it doesn't please you anymore, you say I don't want that. Yeah. Right. But I the thing that's different – We see all these celebrities acting like children, and we're like, oh, yeah, they're celebrities. Artie Moreno, kind of like that. I guess right. Yeah, you just have means. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you can behave like that. You can, do, you can do whatever you want because you're rich. Oh, man. Hey, have you ever gotten an, a, a big inheritance before? I have not, and if I had, I probably wouldn't admit it for people to come steal all my money. Oh, I have not. Uh, I am looking. Potential robbers, I have inherited nothing. I would, uh, I think this is great. I hope, I don't know who's, who I would get one from, but I would really like, listen, hey, if there's anyone out there, uh, two requests actually, Dave, uh, one, if there's anyone out there, I would love a big inheritance. Uh, if you're listening and you don't know t- to whom you might give your wealth, 
The other one is uh, my wife and I, I didn't tell you, I haven't told you this, Karen, I'm telling you for the first time. We're looking to adopt, but we only want to adopt as an intelligent and well-behaved 17-year-old who also uh, has a um, has like a getting a large financial aid benefit package from an Ivy League university. Well, I think uh, yeah, intelligent, well-adjusted 17-year-olds don't exist. I think. <laughs> so first of all, you're looking for like uh, you want to adopt uh, Bigfoot. Doogie Doogie Hauser, <laughs> Doogie Hauser. Yeah, good luck with that. So you don't think that is a possibility? I think that an intelligent, well-adjusted 17-year-old with a a uh, full-ride scholarship to an Ivy League school does not need Carson Sestouli in his life. You don't think so? Well, yeah, listen, I think you need him more than he needs you. <laughs> yeah, that's possible. Yeah. But there might be... Yeah, there actually... Uh, certainly people under 18 have written for Fangraphs. Maybe I should ask them. Do we have any interns? You could, you could uh, adopt Jonah Pemstein, who I believe is 17 and lives not that far from you. Is that right? Yeah, he's and in Boston. Do we know if he's got a scholarship anywhere? I don't know, but he's a smart kid. Yeah, yeah, I think he's going to do pretty well for himself. Maybe yeah. he'll do well for his parents too, uh, or his adopted parents. That's what we call reverse inheritance. I wonder if Jonah Pemstein's parents have a lot of money that that they could leave to you when they die suddenly, oh, and well, then you can okay. become like Jonah Pemstein's ward. <laughs> this is very good. Yeah, I have to get a call this, Jonah. This episode of uh, Fangraphs Audio analyzing all Jonah Pemstein parent murders. Yeah, there's well, no, 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 not murders, but. Accidents that just happen to lead you yeah. to large inheritances. Yeah, it's just Sicily. different. It's a little different. You gotta do. You gotta come on. You're a writer, Dave. Can we gotta? You gotta use the language to your advantage. You know, yeah. you be. I'm generally a tell it like it is kind of writer. I noticed that. I, I would. I would tell this uh, like it is and call it murder. All right. So when do you, if you had to pick a well, over under date for Josh Hamilton appearing in left field for the Texas Rangers, when when would you place it? May twelfth. And. May 12th. And the, it seems as though all indications suggest, right, that the Texas Rangers will not themselves be paying Josh Hamilton a lot of money. Yeah, I think the report is that Hamilton surrendered six or seven million dollars of his contract in order to, uh, offset the fact that there's no state income tax in Texas. So he's basically, uh, giving the, the, giving the tax break to the Rangers and saying, I just don't need that money. Uh, and so the, the, after Hamilton forfeits the amount that he would have gotten as a credit for playing in Texas, uh, I think the Rangers only own like $7 million for the next three years. And so what he, is the, what is he the essentially players? got like Willie Bloomquist's contract. What does the union think about him surrendering money? Well, I think, the, so their point is always they don't want you to devalue your own contract, but because he's going to Texas and getting the tax credit, uh, he's giving up enough of, he's giving up the amount equal to the tax credit, uh, so that is the overall net income to himself remains the same. Okay. All right. So there. All right. You've uh, you've done. Uh, you've definitely fulfilled your obligation. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dave Cameron. Did we miss anything big? Is there anything big? Uh, no. No. I think we've we've touched on things. Okay. All right. Very good. Well, thank you so much, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. All right. That has been uh, Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs and Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio.